This is AutoLine This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode. Hi, I'm John McElroy. Thanks for joining us on AutoLine This Week. Today, we're going to be talking about this automotive industry and where it might be going in this decade. And to help me figure out some of the things that are going on, I've got two of my friends and colleagues joining me, including David Welch from Bloomberg and Joe White from Reuters. Hey, you guys. Hey, John. Hey, John. David. Hey, thanks for making time today. Uh, David, I'm going to start with you, but you guys know the drill. Jump in anytime and we'll, we'll get through where this industry might be headed. But David, as you know, the auto industry is going through enormous transition right now. Two big ones. First of all, it's got to transition itself into making electric cars, battery electric cars. And then after that, probably, it's going to have to figure out how it's going to be part of this whole transition to mobility and mobility services. So my question to you, starting with you, and I'll get Joe in on this too, is what do you think this industry is going to look like at the end of the decade? Look, I think you'll see a, a lot more electric vehicles on the road. And I know that sounds simplistic, but if you, if you look at what General Motors has told us in the past few weeks and what Volkswagen is doing and what Tesla is doing, we, I, we're hitting a point where electric vehicles can be made profitably. They're getting closer and closer to uh, cost parity with internal combustion powered vehicles. And the experts I talk to, executives, people at the accounting uh, or other uh, consulting firms that, that look at costs are telling me about 2025, you'll see cost parity with internal combustion vehicles. And then, and so if you, if you have cost and range at roughly the same level uh, for, for internal combustion vehicles and electric vehicles, and EV is just a better car. It just is. Uh, they're faster, lots more computing power, power on board. They're quieter, the whole bit, and they're, they're easier to make for that matter. So um, I, I think we're going to see a lot more EVs. Consumers really accept them. And they've, they've, they've certainly captured consumer imagination right now. And now it's a matter of awareness for charging and, and really getting the vehicles out there at, at a reasonable price. And I think that'll happen over the next decade. I'm not totally sold on the mobility thing. I think you will see a lot of services by the end of the decade and some will be autonomous, but I think they will still be uh, pretty expensive because the capital cost of those vehicles will be very high. And um, I, I, I think vehicle ownership is still going to be the predominant form of transportation in the U.S. Um, but some of these businesses, I think, will be very successful in dense urban areas where you have some, you know, let's say, well-heeled people who'd rather take a, an autonomous Uber or Waymo or cruise car to work uh, than the subway. And, and I think there's a business for that. It's just not replacing everybody's car with uh, tapping an app to get to work or go wherever you want to go. Joe, so how do you see it? Are we yeah. at the tipping point with electric cars right now? I, I think we're, I, I agree with David. I, th I mean, and I, and a lot of people feel view that within the next 10 years, uh, we'll be at the tipping point. The thing I would add to what, to what David said, most of, or virtually all of which I agree with, I'd add a couple of things. One is, I mean, this is going to take a long time to this transition. I mean, you know, you're going to have to go to sleep and sleep for a really long time to wake up in a world that's all electric, right? I mean, so that's one thing. It was, it'll take two decades uh, or more. The second thing that I'm interested in, and you're starting to hear companies talk about this more and more, is the extent to which along with electrification, 
you get a difference in the business model that the automakers uh, are trying to pursue. Um, you know, selling uh, features over the air, uh, selling services. Uh, Ford has been talking a lot about uh, sort of services as part of a bundle with its commercial vehicles, and. I think that that's going to be a very important thing for the auto companies to, to try to get their heads around. It's not a business they know how to, or they're particularly well-versed in now, but selling selling customers something after the sale, uh, because the electric car itself probably won't be as profitable as, a say, an internal combustion pickup truck for, for quite a while. And how do you make that transition? And so the sort of the digital commerce side of this, I think, is going to be interesting to watch as well. Yeah, Joe, I was wondering uh, about how long EVs would, you know, take over the entire market. And I, like you, thought it would take several decades. But what do you think about countries and even states talking about banning the internal combustion engine? Some by 2030, California yeah. by 2035. Does that alter your outlook? It, 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 it's an easy promise to make when you're a politician who's in office for not the next 10 years, right? Say <laughs> so my successor will ban it. will will take the heat for banning internal combustion, new sales of internal combustion cars. I, I'm a little skeptical of that. I mean, because not because I think people are, are acting in bad faith necessarily, but I think that, you know, you set these technology deadlines and then when you get to 2028 and uh, everybody still wants to buy a F-150 uh, or a Silverado, or, you know, especially in this country, um, I think there's going to be uh, some hesitation around that. But the goal is real. And I think the auto companies, again, to David's point, the auto companies are one by one getting behind this, either because they really believe it and they think they can have a competitive advantage, uh, competitive advantage, or two, because they basically see that, you know, if they don't get on the bus, they're going to get run over by the bus. So, yeah. Yeah, how about you, David? These bans going to accelerate the adoption of EVs? I think it's it's certainly pushing development. The car companies are seeing that if that uh, if a ban of EVs, say in California, isn't in place in in ten years because the state backed off, and, and let's be clear, the California Air Resources Board, uh, God, since I started uh, covering the auto industry in the late nineties, there have been uh, you know clean air and, and zero emission vehicle mandates and electric vehicle mandates from CARB going back decades that when it actually came time for them to, to enforce them in, in year yeah. X, they backed off because it just wasn't feasible or the, the, the cars didn't exist. But it will push development because the car companies know, okay, if they're not going to out and out ban internal combustion vehicles, they know that if when CARB or any, any states or countries back off, they're still going to have a some big mandate that tells them they have to have electric vehicles in their market to sell the other stuff. So I think it, 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 it does push development of it. Uh, frankly, I don't think any of those bans are going to live, but I, they will be backed off with some sort of uh, very tough mandate or restrictions or, 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 you know, some kind of legislative push that makes everybody sell more of these. Well, and David, you made a good point right at the beginning, which is that electric vehicles done right are better cars. They're smarter, they're more upgradable. So, and I certainly in the, in the luxury segments, I mean, this is, I mean, I think I can, this is also what you see, but it's something I believe that in the luxury segments in five to 10 years, and this is why Cadillac, right, is going all electric. And I think others brands as well. In the luxury segments, I really do think people are, are a lot of the customers, almost all of them are going to say, look, I, it needs to be electric or I'm just not into it. Um, I think, again, in the United States is not the same as France or the UK. And I just, I guess I still have a lot of trouble believing that 
in in 10 years time, uh, sales of internal combustion trucks and SUVs are going to be ended across the United States. It's just, but I think a lot of segments are going to go electric fairly quickly, commercial, luxury, and 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 that's why you see these investments happening. Um, and I do think the car companies are you see it are at a point where they they have to they have to they can't they don't have unlimited capital so they've got to start making choices and you're seeing them back away from future internal combustion putting more money into electric and that has its own momentum as well so you might, the other thing go ahead david the other thing pushing this is that wall street is rewarding electric vehicle companies oh, yeah. even those even those with no profit no profit no plant no vehicle for that matter they're getting rewarded and and, and they and they see they see auto companies with internal combustion vehicles and big factories as this just big steaming hunk of sunk capital and perpetually declining market that they shouldn't invest in even if those companies are actually developing vehicles but another point you made earlier joe about all these uh you know other services that they can sell. You can do that better if you have more computing computing power on board and powering really great supercomputers that can supply all kinds of content and autonomous capabilities. Not really done so great with a 12 volt battery. So, no. um, you know, that's another great thing about EVs is you got all this power on board, which helps computing, which adds other services and, and capabilities. So like everything is heading in that direction. It's just a question of when. Yeah, let's dive a little bit deeper into that. And Joe, I'll start with you on this. You know, when you look at uh, the startups, the EV startups, uh, not just Tesla, everybody knows about Tesla. But if you look at some of the Chinese ones, NIO yeah. and Xpeng, their valuations are really good. Not Tesla levels, but above a lot of traditional automakers. On the supplier side of things, if you look at a, a supplier like Aptiv, you know, which yeah. was carved out of Delphi, Man, they've got the highest valuation of any supplier out there. And if you look on the retail side of things, the giants are AutoNation and Penske Automotive, but Carvana has a yeah. much bigger valuation than they do. So my question to you is, is there anything that the traditional OEMs and suppliers can do to boost their valuations? Well, they've been trying, as you know. Uh, I mean, General Motors has probably done the, the best job, at least in the United States, of, of, of being a traditional automaker uh, that's boosted its stock price some, a little, but not that, not, not to, I mean, there's still a fraction of what Tesla's market cap is. I mean, and that's, that's really the, the issue is the capital markets have spoken. Uh, they and it, look, they may be wrong. The capital market's been wrong before about a lot of things. Uh, they may be too soon, but they have spoken, and I think that is going to drive. Uh, I mean, it it just drives behavior. Uh, it it's just so much cheaper to raise capital if you're promising an electric an electric car solution or electric truck or whatever. I agree that the, that skepticism about some of these startups is absolutely warranted, um, but. Look, that's what the capital markets have, have decided. So they look out ten years, and um, you know they see internal combustion as you know a niche sunset technology. You know, ten years from now, we'll know if they were right, but that's what they think right now. And and so, yeah, it has an enormous impact on on everybody making decisions. What do you think, David? As automakers come out with these over-the-air updates, some of which they'll be able to charge for, as they provide digital services, as they monetize the data. Do they even have a chance of getting these kind of tech valuations? Uh, it, it's going to be tough for them to get a, a Tesla kind of valuation. But you know, the one thing, GM is a great example because they have been steadily throughout 2020 telling this story of the Ultium battery, increased investment, 
the Hummer, the Cadillac, uh, the whole Cadillac line, all these EVs coming to market. And they, you know, they keep feeding that story in the same way that the startups try to. And look, to GM's credit, GM shares are up 20% this year. The broader market is up 16%. Ford is down 2.5%. So, so Mary Barr is not getting Elon Musk kind of buzz. But she's doing better than uh, Mr. S&P, and she's doing better, certainly, than the people in Dearborn. Um, and, and a lot of that is, look, given credit, the profitability has been, you know, blowing estimates out of the water every quarter. That also helps. But um, it's really the EV story. They're never going to get the kind of valuation that these others are getting because the market at the moment is rewarding pure plays. But look, as far as these these startups go and the huge valuations some of them are getting, I mean, even Nikola, which has been, you know, let's call it a very troubled drama over the past couple of months, um, you know, still still has a pretty fat valuation given what they actually have. What's going to happen to these companies? I'll just take a look at two eras in business, 20s and 30s when we had 60 or 80 different automotive startups because factories and industrialization was, that was the tech play back then. And almost all of them by, by the 60s died, right? We were down to maybe four or five auto companies and that was quickly going down to three. And then I would look at telecom in the 90s, right? AT&T was, uh, had been, uh, the bells had been split up. AT&T was a, a big player, but not as exciting. And there were a lot of startups where money was pouring into them and a lot of them went bankrupt. Tons of value destroyed. Telecom was the thing, right? You know, not just, it was landlines and cell phones at, at the time. Lots of value destroyed, and you did have a handful of key players coming out of it, and one was one of the actual several of them were some of the old incumbents. So I'd look at those two areas as kind of historical lessons on what we might see with the startups and the big players in this in this game. Yeah, yeah and I think yeah, China China right now is is like the United States in the early 1900s when it comes to car companies, right? I mean, it's it's crazy. I mean, every or at least it looks crazy. I, I'm not in China, but it sure looks crazy from here. Um, and, you know, does that get shaken out? Yeah, probably. I mean, it looks like the Chinese government has probably had enough of propping up, uh, you know, companies that, that don't really have a future and they're shaking it out. But yeah, I think you do have kind of a moment, as David described, uh, you know, of sort of, a, you know, kind of throw people throwing capital into this proposition that cars are going to do a, a, a once in a century transition from one type of power, one type of technology to another. Um, Everybody get on board, right? Someone's gonna, someone's not gonna make it to the end of the line, but everyone's getting on board. Isn't there a danger this time around, though? Because so many of these startups are going through reverse mergers, SPACs. You know, if you want to talk Nikola or Neo or Xpeng, the, the the Chinese ones or or others, rather than have to grind it out, make products, show that they're doing something, go through the traditional IPO process, but a boom, bada bang, they do a reverse merger, they get all this money. And they're not tried and proven yet. They just get a ton of money. Uh, David, don't you think this is potentially a, a danger for investors? Um, I think it's potentially a bonfire uh, of, of, of both vanity and capital. Um, look, you know, th this would worry me for, for a bunch of reasons. First of all, the old, like, what, what you guys just described, you had to have a product, some revenue. You didn't have to necessarily make money, but you had to have some revenue, preferably profits. And then you would go through this grueling roadshow where you were picked apart by uh, all of the buy side analysts whose hedge funds might buy a piece of this thing. And a whole bunch of book runners would have to try to convince people to buy these stocks. 
Now you just get one company, one SPAC's due diligence team to say, yeah, this is great. Um, and, by, and by the way, those SPACs typically have 24 months to find a deal after they raise the money. So as the clock ticks down, as the, you know, as the grains of sand get thin in that, in that hourglass, they're under pressure to cut a deal. Uh, is that the best recipe for finding a great deal? Uh, I guess we will see, but I'm, I'm skeptical. So yeah, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of this you know, due diligence of one company's team kind of process. And you look at some of the companies, I mean, look, the Nikola drama we've written a ton about, you mentioned it earlier, but also, you know, and I'm not saying Fisker won't make it, but you know, Henrik's got a great looking SUV in the ocean, but he didn't have a battery pack or an assembler before he went public. Now he does, he's working with Magna, just trying to illustrate how easy it is to get the capital in this SPAC attack uh, world that we're living in. Uh, you know, forget about revenue and profits. He didn't even have the makings, of the, like the underpinnings of the vehicle or the battery pack, and he got money. Yeah, yeah John, no, what do you think? No, SPACs I, I, good, I, bad? Well, I, I look. I mean, a caveat emptor. You know, it's been a his. It's a it's a phrase that pays, right? And, and um, I I agree. I mean, I think this the SPAC thing is kind of baffling. Unless you start to basically say, look, you know, if, if you've got money that you can afford to, to risk, you, you know, taking a flyer on an electric vehicle company is a perfectly reasonable thing to do because, you know, again, it's a once in a century, certainly probably once in a lifetime opportunity. You, if you're investing money in this sector now, you miss Tesla. I mean, you're it's too late, right? Maybe not, but, but you miss the real run up in Tesla. So what are you going to do? But I agree, I, I, and I would not be surprised uh, uh, with the change in administration in Washington if a somewhat more jaundiced eye uh, from regulators is cast toward this activity uh, at some point, especially if one of these deals really blows up in a serious way. Um, but right now, you know, I, it seems like people are willing to kind of do the caveat emptor thing, and and you have some you know companies like Nikola that have gone you know had had a pretty rough ride. But then again, Nikola's, you know, at least as seems like right now, they're sorting themselves out. So who knows? You know, I think uh, I think it's just going to be a little bit chaotic. Yeah. Talk about the the incoming administration here, David. Do you expect a lot of change in Washington or maybe a better way of asking it is what do you think the automotive industry would like out of a Biden administration? Well, we, we do have a piece of that already. Right. Uh, so We'll, we'll see California get its exemption. You're starting to see the car companies piling together under the California plan, which actually wasn't even as stringent as the Obama standards that, that Trump hadn't yet gotten rid of. But I, I think you'll see the two sides, that being the Biden administration in California, come up with a standard for fuel economy rules everyone can live with. Um, and, and I think the fact that everyone's getting together tells us that that's in the works. The other thing that Biden has already talked about that everybody in the industry wants is bringing back the electric vehicle tax credit. He's talking about 500 to 550,000 charging stations across the country. So I, I can see Biden giving tax credits to help EV sales, which, and look, everybody needs that cover right now because in the next three, four years, we're going to see a lot of EVs coming to market, but the cost parity is not expected to, to, to come about with internal combustion vehicles until mid-decade. So uh, that money's going to help everybody either sell them or make it a profit or at least break even maybe a little bit of, a little bit of all three um, for, from the government plan. And, and you know, I, I do think even though the road trip is kind of what's called an edge case for electric vehicles, a lot of people 
who who don't watch AutoLine, who don't read my stuff or Joe's stuff, and who don't live in the industry day in day out, who you know, someone who works in a warehouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and drives a seven year old vehicle, he doesn't look around to say, oh, there really are a lot of charging stations and parking garages and places where I can't see. I just can't see them. I'm going to download an app and find them, and then I'll go find an EV. That's not how people work. They see a filling station on every corner. They don't see chargers anywhere. They don't buy an EV. I think what Biden is trying to do is almost like a, you know, piggybacking on the, the Eisenhower administration's build out of the highways, and now you'll see chargers on the highways, and people say, wait a minute, I can actually get an EV and take a road trip, and there really is no compromise. And that fear, people call it range anxiety. I think it's just what do you see out there on the street for most buyers, okay? And and I think the Biden administration can start to, fi start to fix that. And that's what the industry needs. Like they, they do need some government leadership on uh, the infrastructure and, and, and you know, some cash to, <laughs> to help EVs really take off. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's all true. And I do think it's also gonna matter a lot who wins this set of elections that's underway in Georgia. If Biden has a Republican Senate to deal with. Um, I think big infrastructure spending is very unlikely to happen. I mean, obviously, I don't really know, but it seems unlikely. If he has a Democratic Senate, Democratic House, and, and then then I think things get different because you could imagine, you know, significant infrastructure spending, which he's talked about, uh, and, you know, the chargers and all of that uh, happening. And you could see the tax credit for EVs uh, being extended and expanded. The other thing I'd say, um, is it isn't just what the companies want that will matter, I think, to the Biden administration. It's what the UAW wants um, and what is perceived to be good for workers. Um, and so I think the car companies are going to need to demonstrate uh, a concern for the potential displacement or disruption of the workforce by electrification. Not that they wouldn't, but I think that's going to be a, a, a subject that the Biden administration will pay a lot of attention to. Um, um, and the UAW will remind them to pay attention to that uh, as they go forward. Yeah, let's talk on uh, car dealers, retailers a little bit. David, what's your outlook for the retail end of the industry as you look out uh, for the rest of the decade? Well, I, I think dealers are gonna be around for a long time. And uh, you know they, they've, they've got more lives than, a, than many, many prides of cats. Uh, I mean, people have been telling me that dealers are gonna be extinct because consumers hate them because the internet is here for, for a very long time. But you know, look, in a lot of states, as you guys know, that you know, dealers have uh, pretty good viewers and a lot of money going into state houses across the country and those laws protect them. The other thing is that the car companies don't, no matter what they, they say, they don't really wanna replace dealers uh, completely. It still is how people buy and get their cars serviced, and the direct sales model. You know, as long as the dealer has a piece of that, um, they might be able to do it. But it's still going to have to go through a dealer. Um, the car companies themselves are—they may talk about direct selling online and, and the Tesla model, but they really don't know how to do that. They really don't know how to do much in terms of directly dealing with consumers. They're wholesalers. They make stuff and they heave it off to a separate retailer. They just, this just isn't what they do. Frankly, they're not even that great at marketing the stuff uh, and giving the dealers the advertising and marketing that they need for it. So they're not good at picking real estate locations and, and managing all that. This is a massive headache that they really don't want to deal with and they never have. And I, and I think dealers will, dealers do that for them. You can argue whether or not they do a good job. I think the dealers will have to change in the sense that 
um, it'll be more of a direct sales model because the transaction will be handled mostly online and it's getting faster already. Um, you know, look, look at what happened during COVID. Uh, online processing of transaction, drop off the vehicle, you spend very little time in the showroom. And I think that that's kind of what's going to happen going forward, but they'll be around for a long time, I think. Yeah, Joe, your thoughts? Yeah, I I, I, I agree. I, I think that's I think that tr traditional dealers that don't figure out how to do kind of a smart hybrid of selling online and servicing servicing in you know as they must in in, in real life, but also embracing sort of the the increasing increasing digitalization of service. That's still a hard word for me to say. Um, um, you know, you're not going to get 200 bucks for reflashing something. Okay, that's over. Uh, but if the brakes go out on under warranty, you're going to do that. And I agree with David that I don't think the, the traditional car companies have a huge appetite for taking on the capital investment, the employee relations, and all of this, that stuff that goes with owning the stores. I'm frankly not even sure Tesla wants to do that in, in, in reality. Um, but but I do think it's going to be interesting to watch over the next several years as the car companies and the dealers do this dance of trying to move more sales, particularly of electric vehicles, sales, move more sales online without completely gutting the sort of the service and support aspect of what the dealers do. You see GM kind of experimenting with this with the way that they're trying to sell the Hummer. Um, I think other companies um, are going to do this as well. And um, Look, everybody, you mentioned this, John, at the top, Carvana's cap, uh, market cap is significantly higher than the traditional dealerships. That tells you something. It tells you that their model is one that investors like and that consumers like. And I do think that, you know, ignoring that will be done at, at the peril of the traditional retailer. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating decade to watch this industry roll out. Heck, next week's going to be interesting. <laughs> yeah, who, who, I don't even know what's going to happen next week, John. I mean, you know. <laughs> That's right. But with that, we're going to have to wrap this up. I really want to thank you guys for your time today, especially for your insights. Always good stuff. David Welch from Bloomberg, Joe White from Reuters. Thank you. And we'll have you back again great, in the future. Good to see you. Thanks so much, John. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode.